HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to wineaccess.com slash HRN for more info. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. This is Tuesday, January 26, 2021, and we're recording remotely with some uh, cider friends up in Finger Lakes, New York. Now, cider, uh, Finger Lakes, New York, to me, is the place for really good, fine, hard cider in America. And we've got three really special practitioners. We're going to talk about dry cider, but also regenerative agriculture and go down the rabbit hole that uh, we've been really looking forward to to start off the year. So let's have each guest introduce themselves first. Uh, Autumn, start with you, please. Hey, this is Autumn Stochek, and I um, have a small cidery and orchard uh, just outside of Ithaca, and um, I farm it with my husband, Ezra, and we're certified organic, and we've been making cider since 2002. And you guys are Eve's Cidery. And Eve's Cider. Deva? Hi, I'm Deva Moss. Um, we've been, I've been growing apples for over 15 years with my husband, Eric, um, and making cider for 10. We're certified biodynamic. Um, we have two orchard sites, and we're kind of right outside of uh, Trumansburg and Burdette, New York. And you guys are Redbird Cider. We're Redbird Orchard Cider, yeah. And then Melissa? Hi, uh, I'm Melissa Madden, Open Spaces Cider. Tiny, tiny little cidery based out of Trumansburg, New York. Um, This is my second cidery, but uh, my first based on some of the concepts of the open spaces and the edgy spaces. apple trees that have been left behind through other ownership transitions. And um, I'm making cider through the mentorship of both Autumn and um, Eric at Redbird. I do most of my pressing with Eric. So there's another funny concept to this cidery, which is sort of collaboration and minimal ownership of infrastructure, which I think is uh, 
kind of an interesting entry point for some people. Great. So where we're going to go with this show, the, the three guests that we have, listeners, are making fine, dry ciders, some of the best in the country as far as I'm concerned. So we're going to talk uh, a little more about some of the other values that they have that, that are part of that. Um, Autumn, why don't you introduce the show since we had a nice conversation back in the fall for Cider Week uh, with you and your husband. And this is the show that you wanted to talk talk about next. Yeah, well, I, I seem to remember that you asked me a question on that podcast about regenerative agriculture, and I, I had a lot to say. <laughs> you were like, um, maybe we should do another podcast. <laughs> um. So regenerative agriculture um, is kind of a buzzword these days, right, Jimmy? I mean, is, is that why you brought it up? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I'll say M- Melissa had mentioned it on the, on the show about a year and a half ago, and I'd never heard of it, but I knew there were things like biodynamic and, and no-till and permaculture, but I hadn't really put it all together. And a friend told me about Alan Savory and grassland grazing. But uh, it seemed that, that – let's start with that about – the practices that you guys use in terms of your land and your orchards, but then we're going to go a little further uh, than that. So um, how about Dave? What, what practices are you guys using um, in your orchards? They said they're certified biodynamic. Yep. So for us, you know, we, well, all of us are doing perennial crops. So in that sense, they are there sequestering carbon all the time. Um, we, so we do that. We have a flock of sheep that we and ducks and geese that we rotate throughout the orchard um, and in our open spaces for fertilizing, but also for mowing. Um, And then we do underneath our trees, we do mulching um, rather than mowing. Uh, what are some other things we do? We do wildflower, you know, in between our rows. We leave probably every other row most of the time open for bee habitat rather than mowing down. And then we do a lot of, I don't know if you would call it hedgerow maintenance, but we make sure we have a very healthy, vital hedgerow system um, in the orchard. So we're kind of, the only thing we're really taking out of the orchard is the fruit, um, for the most part, I would say. That's great. And Melissa, how would you in- introduce us to the concept of regenerative agriculture in terms of cider making? Um, I think probably the way I came to it, which was as a farmer, um, I, had, I think I shared this with you in the intro, but I still think it's interesting, uh, which is that I started to learn about how cool farming was from autumn in 2000 or 2001. Um, And that kind of led me down a path of doing like kind of a more traditional apprenticeship on a vegetable farm um, and then uh, working on a grain farm and then sort of transitioning to being really interested in, um, you know, from no-till concepts to really regenerative soil building concepts having to do with grass and trees and things that do really well in the Northeast with fewer inputs. Um, and that led to uh, what what actually agriculturally saleable crops existed within that context, which led to apples. Um, and so my farm that I started in 2008 and left um, just a year ago was really based on the 
sort of undulating hedgerow concept of apples with grazing animals in between, similar to what Deva was just referencing. I think it's a really beautiful system. It's used quite frequently in Europe. And I think one of the mistakes of, of permaculture was to um, is to assume that that's a new technology and it's really the sort of natural way that savannas were managed um, and used by, by people for, you know, eons. So it's just sort of taking this sort of naturalized approach to trying to produce food in a, in a more lo uh, lower input manner with higher yields per acre, but thinking about yield per acre in a very different way. Melissa, what is that? The, the grassland management, just, just give me a little, I'd heard about Alan Savory. I, maybe our listeners don't know about it. Um, well, I never ended up following holistic management to like, you know, a lot of people end up becoming trainers, but there's a whole movement just around grass-fed beef in particular around uh, soil carbon sequestration, which um, is kind of a, a density calculation, how many animals per square foot and how often you move. There's this concept around uh, whether they're taking one bite of, of grass and creating a regenerative, quick-growing, um, you know, regrowing system, whereas two bites and beyond tends to be depleting to the plant system. And impacts the the longevity of the root system which impacts the soil health and soil regenerative quality so that a lot of people who are practicing it really seriously can move their cows up to six or seven times a day um, but they would be in really dense um, dense packs so on my farm I raised both cows and horses and turkeys and geese and what we found with the um, th there was always rapid movement at minimum it was a it was a one move a day. I just didn't have the management time nor the focus on one enterprise to move more than once a day. But with the turkeys, you know, it's important to match your livestock to the um, to the plants. So like I wanted to get our trees to a point where they could uh, support cattle, but that would require older trees that could take like the major headbanging activity that cows do against trees and also be pruned to a certain height. So that's like one model that I think Autumn should speak to because she saw it more in um, Europe. And I think that uh, Deva and Eric could explain how sheep are different. Um, my, my orchard was younger than either of theirs. So we kind of just stuck to the poultry model and then had cattle on, a, on the acres that we hadn't been able to develop into um, orchard yet. But I think for my, for my like next round of projects, I, I think like poultry is a really accessible uh, sort of new enterprise because it has a one-year cycle and you don't necessarily need to raise the mothers um, the way you do with cattle or sheep. So I would love to give both of them time to talk about what, they, what they've seen with the, gra the grazing part of it as well. Yeah, I would just jump in and say, like for your listeners, um, if somebody hasn't gone down that rabbit hole with regenerative agriculture, um, I think one of the main ideas behind, say, when you say the word regenerative versus say something like, say like sustainable agriculture and they could, they could both be happening, but um, maybe the idea with sustainable agriculture is okay. It's okay if we do this farm because like we can kind of maintain the level of, you know, health in the orchard or the farm or whatever going forward. Um, regenerative agriculture might take it a step further and say, hey, like how can we have a relationship with this land here in which the activities that we're doing on the land are not only 
producing an abundance for the purposes of us humans, whether that's like, you know, for our, our own eating or whether we're selling it um, as, as a livelihood, but we're also actually improving the land. And I think, Jimmy, to your point with um, grazing, one example of that um, that your listeners may or may not know um, is that grass, like like trees, grass is like different than trees, but trees here in the Northeast do a very similar thing as grazing animals, like say in a savanna, um, which is that, <clears throat> this is, and this is really in stark contrast to agriculture where there's tillage. So any kind of like grain farming or annual farming um, or even orchards where you may have like a, like many, many miles of bare herbicide strips under the trees. Um, you've probably seen photos of this. It, it happens with apples and almonds and peaches and everything else. But when you have grass or you have a plant and the plant is breathing in carbon dioxide and exhaling oxygen, um, they're using sunlight and the carbon they take out of the air um, in the form of the carbon dioxide to make sugar and grow themselves and make cellulose um, and their bodies are made out of carbon. And um, half of that plant material is underneath the soil. And so um, <clears throat> and the plant, especially with grass, when the, when the animal eats it, um, the roots die back to the same amount of grass that the, that the cow or bison or whatever ate it, left it to. And that carbon that's in the soil gets incorporated into the humus with all of the microorganisms that live there. And that is in fact how the topsoil of the Midwest of the United States of America was built and created, which we are now using up really rapidly. So that's the exciting thing for farmers is to think like, oh, how can we, how can we actually sink carbon and how can we actually make our farms be these better and better places, more and more vibrant places. So the soil is, is a really important part of this whole process, isn't it? It's what it's all about. It's all about the soil, which is really different, I think, than maybe, uh, you know, sort of modern conventional chemical agriculture has thought of soil as chemical constituents and as like a sort of growing medium <laughs> versus an actual ecosystem you know <clears throat> well, what about david let's jump in on this oh uh let's see david that's okay um yeah i mean all of those things make a whole lot of sense right and you know i it's funny for me, I think I heard of the term regenerative agriculture right at the same time you did, Jimmy. And it's not a it's actually not a term that we use at Redbird. We we never have. I I mean it, I guess it we fall into it is what we are doing. Um so it you know, it it is kind of farming in the ways that produce good food, but you're also, you know, a lot of people, like I have a degree in um, sustainable eco ag from Evergreen State College. So that's like, I think I graduated in 98. So back then, the kind of what, what we were taking in was this concept of what you're really growing is soil. And I think that kind of still really holds true and is kind of what this 
almost repackaging is with the term regenerative now. Um, I could be wrong on that, but it seems like that's really the focus is what you're putting into the ground to, to keep there for you and then for whatever future generations are farming on that land um, as well. So is this something that's like, is this kind of the vibe in, in your area of the Finger Lakes? Is, is this what other farmers are doing across the boards and, and other cider makers? It's a really good question. <laughs> I think it's all over the place. I mean, the integration of animals, I guess I got kind of stuck on, but is, is very specific. Uh, you know, it's a choice to have another enterprise to diversify your farm in a certain way. And then you get involved in, you know, butchering and slaughter and, you know, maintaining feed and all that stuff. And you need to become a livestock person as well. So that's like a very, you know, that's a very personality based decision, um, which some people around here have made. I think there is a point that we wanted to make about regenerative agriculture that maybe we would have gotten a chance to make later, but I feel like all three of us would probably want to make it as often as possible. Um, I don't know, Dave or Autumn, if you want to take it, otherwise I will, which is the relationship to, to food, to food and land justice. Go for it. I, I think I would love to hear you talk about it. I think I would just really quickly preface it by saying um, that it's, it can be tempting to get focused on techniques when you are trying to define um, agriculture or different types of agriculture, but with, with sort of the idea behind regenerative agriculture, which is like a non, a non-extractive type of agriculture, like the opposite of that. So much of that is about relationships and it's your relationship to your land. I was listening to Deva talk and I was just thinking, ah, I wish the listeners could see Deva and Eric's orchard, because it's not, it's almost, it, it's like a place where, you know, children are like running barefoot in the flowers. It's not like what <laughs> you think of when you think of like rows and rows of a monocropped agriculture. And, and yet it, the, you know, they produce these phenomenal high quality apples that make some of the best cider in the country. And, and I think it's like, we have a tendency to sort of think, oh, okay, well, you know, agriculture is, you know, we humans have kind of screwed it up and we just need to be like, kind of more, you know, more accepting of nature or something like that. But I, I actually think agriculture is about our relationship with nature and it's, you know, and it goes back and forth and yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, so Eric and I were just watching um, a video with uh, Pete Jemison from Ganondagan, um, and he was talking with, who was the woman from the uh, Onondaga? from the Onondaga nation who runs the Onondaga farm, like the, the farm for their nation. And it's, I think getting really close to self-sufficient. And she was saying, you know, she has some conventional growers that come up to her and say, how do you do this? How do you grow so much food on two acres of land? And she was talking about, you know, well, this is, we, we rotate our crops. We do all of these different things that, you know, in another context, somebody would say, oh, that's regenerative 
agriculture. And so I think this is something that is all over and we, you know, it's being called this thing. It's named something, but it has been here forever. Um, and in some ways, this packaging of it as being called regenerative in a certain sense is trying to get, I think, to undo some of the, um, you know, more modern things that came in once you started tilling all the time and plowing. And um, there's, so it's not just like people in the Finger Lakes and people in this like green eco movement of, you know, sustainable organic egg. There's a lot of traditional based um, farms and farming that are like, we we're going to keep doing it the way we've always been doing it. And adding in that, you know, I think the thing that can get lost is um, you can't like, yes, it's going to put carbon back into the ground. It's going to do all of these things, but there's this other piece to it that is what makes it all come together. And I guess what brought this up for me is when you were talking about, oh, agriculture and its humans being, you know, screwing things up. And the fact is that isn't what agriculture has to be on this earth. And it isn't what it always has been right. either. That's right. And I think it's coming to that place of rethinking, especially modern ag, and not saying we have to like become Luddites and go way back in time, but like putting all of our heads together, like scientific data, indigenous knowledge, uh, you know, a whole different way of thinking of economies too, and of of generosity within e- economic systems. Like it's it's this whole big big. No, thing. and and we're gonna go there. I'm gonna jump to one thing. So when you're explaining this to me, and I, I think about going back to traditional ways, um, is this similar to what what natural the natural wine movement is, where someone realizes that they're making they're on their old property and they're making wine this similar to their grandparents or something. We're going to talk about land justice after. I just want to get through some of these I th- concepts. I think, I think, I think there's definitely a connection there. Um, like every, every, every categorization like becomes fraught at some level, you know, like what does <laughs> natural wine mean? And like, blah, 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 blah. And there's all this controversy, but I totally think that, the two ideas go hand in hand because they are about, um, I think natural wine is also about your relationship to fermentation, you know, and it's, it's a relationship as opposed to total domination. You know, it's a, it's a give and a take, it's observation, it's, um, patience, it's, um, you know, uh, uh, subtle shifts as opposed to heavy handed, you know, out of a package kind of interventions. And I think that is absolutely true for uh, organic biodynamic and regenerative farming as well. So when I think of natural wine, when I'm, I'm going to bring this to cider, when I think of natural wine, I think of being at a raw wine tasting and there's a, a, a family that is in Mount Etna in, in Sicily. And, and when you open the bottle, you smell, you smell the, the volcanic smoke and it's a smoky wine. It's just from the soil. So everything, everything in that, that wine is from the soil. How for each of you, I want to bring it back to what you guys do in your cider making or your orchards. 
how is what you do uh, in your practices, how does that translate into what's in the glass for a cider? So I'm just going to speed this up. Uh, let's start with uh, Melissa. Uh, can you re restate the question for me again? Um, so similar, like how is the general concept of this natural winemaking or re regenerative agriculture, how does that come across in the glass when I taste your cider or something like that <laughs> <laughs> or pick a cider that would reflect that for me pitch um, pitch your product for a minute so my product makes me laugh um well i think i want to acknowledge straight up that i am the apprentice in this group um my goal with my cider was to do as little as possible i think in the 2019 vintage i felt that i actually did not um did not consider myself a uh, equal partner to the fermentation to use autumn's concept. I, I kind of let it control me and I spent a lot of time uh, begging it to go in certain directions. So I think in the 2020 fermentation actually took a lot more control. And, you know, some of the means of control would be like, you know, our sulfites or temperature or timing, you know, changing my timing or vessels, all those kind of things. Um, so I'm really excited that I'm, you know, I, I released a certain amount of the 2019 um, wild, but I actually still have a fair amount of it because it's kind of earmarked in certain ways and there's so little of it. I'm excited to release it next to the 2020 because I think it'll be a really good exploration of that question that you just asked me. Um, and also I had very little control over my space in 2019. That was kind of based on the concept of, um, borrowing and sharing and collaborating without owning almost anything. Cause that was like, that's the phase of transition I'm in um, from leaving my, my old project. So. Yeah. But you had, you had a cool cider that's out called, you said it's finger lakes forest pet nat. Uh, no, the pet nat is the 2020 and it's that's the 2020. Out. Yeah. So yeah. we're really the looking forward to what is what Melissa, what you're doing at open spaces cider is really cool. And we're really looking forward to, Keeping up with that, I know my friend Paige at Boutique Wines in Fishkill, New York, is is a big fan of of all your ciders, and that's a great place to stock up, especially now on Redbird and Eve cider at uh, Boutique. Um, so let's go uh, yeah. to. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump around a little bit now, so um, we will go back to, and talk about a cider of each of yours. I'd like to go into the land justice issue. Um, how does regenerative agriculture relate to that? Why is that important? Why is why is why are indigenous people in this conversation? And you know, uh, let's go with Dave on that. Oh, uh, let's see. Um, well, I kind of was speaking to it earlier too. I think that you know, if if. If part of what we're doing, I guess if we're using the term regenerative or if we say, you know, I think the term that's more prevalently used in our region and probably all over and is a very familiar term to people that are into the food movements and, and drinking beverages and all that is, you know, a sustainable or an environmentally, you know, conscious business. And if part of your mission statement is you are sustainable then you want to like kind of expanding that definition to include um, beyond just 
uh, being sustainable for like your agricultural practices as far as what you're doing to the soil to include that to uh, equity and uh, land access, all of the things that are wrapped up in soil and land and agriculture production and that for you to really be a sustainable business or engage and especially marketing as sustainability, that it would be really beautiful if we could see that, that a, a, a definition to expand, to include, are you sustainable in a um, reparations and climate justice sort of way? And how does that how does that then affect how you farm and how you market and how you look at the economics of your business? This would so, be like my hope. Let's go Autumn. So how does reparations come into play? And I think you guys made a collaboration uh, package that, that mentioned reparations, but I, I'm not really sure what that is. Yeah. So, um, the idea behind our package um, was that we, um, uh, you know, kind of just to take this back to that 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 idea I was talking about about relationships. You know, and we we make the connection between our relationship and the soil. We make the connection between our relationship and our fermentations, and we make the connection between our relationship between the people in our community and, you know, community is so important to agriculture and it's so important to food and food systems. And we have a long, long, um, shameful legacy in this country of exclusion, um, and far worse, you know, genocide and slavery when we think about our agricultural communities in this, in this country. And, the legacy of that is that in New York State, for example, 98%, 98% of all farms are owned by white people. Um, and to us, this the, the future of sustainable agriculture has to include all the people that are here in our community and um, how agriculture becomes more inclusive is also going to involve people like ourselves who are white farm owners um, helping to make that happen and bringing resources to the table to redistribute them and reparate. So reparations is that in essence, it's, um, you know, something you may have heard in the context of something a government would do. And of course we're all holding out you know, hope that that's, that is going to be a step that happens in our country, but we don't need to wait for that. Reparations is also something, and I, and I learned this from Deva, um, because when I, when I told Deva about a year ago that, you know, I was interested in reparations, but it just felt so overwhelming to me. She explained to me that I could think of reparations like tithing. Um, and this is something that we can almost do like in a spiritual sense to just continually um, make that offering. And so most recently an offering that, that we made as cider makers was a, a holiday package 
Uh, it included one of each of our ciders. Um, each of those ciders was made entirely from wild foraged fruit from around the Finger Lakes. And um, the value of the package, except for the, the packaging, um, we basically asked that the participants who, who bought the package made a donation to a local land access group that is um, working to make land um, available for farming to people who have tr traditionally been marginalized from the land, people of color, in, in, in Ithaca and the surrounding area in the Finger Lakes. And then the participants, um, after they paid paid quarter acre for the people project, which is our land access partner. Um, we shipped them the package and then they joined us for a live virtual tasting and conversation um, about the topic. And it was amazing. We, we sold out in like, what was it like a week? I can't remember Melissa. And then, and then Melissa had to make a, a waiting list. <laughs> we squeezed 10 more people in, um, but we were really overwhelmed and surprised with the response and how much people wanted to participate. Wow. So people, so people really are interested in transparency, knowing the whole story and knowing that you, you guys actually care about things beyond just profit. Right. And I think actually there's a lot of, a lot of our customers who want to participate in these kinds of actions themselves. And really the, the, brilliance behind the project, which was, um, you know, the credit needs to go to Melissa for this one, was to conceive of a really joyful act, you know, uh, sharing this really tiny, small batch, um, lovingly handcrafted cider, all of which is really delicious, um, in a celebratory way with, with a group of people. Um, while we talk about, you know, our intentions for helping the world to be a better place is it's the kind of experience that, you know, a lot of people are longing for. Wow. I'll tell you, that's great. We're going to take a short break and come back in a minute. And Melissa is going to tell us more about that project on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Sam Ben Ruby from The Grape Nation. You may know my show is all about enlightening, inspiring, and motivating you guys to try and drink more wine. I want to tell you about a great way to discover and drink the best wine, wine access. Whether you're a neophyte or an expert, wine access makes it easy for everyone to learn about and buy the wines you like. Their team tastes over 20,000 selections per year and only curates the finest wines, exceeding expectations and over-delivering on price. Through the years, Wine Access has cultivated relationships with under-the-radar winemakers, as well as the most iconic producers. Think Opus One, Dana, Larkmead, Silver Oak, just to name a few. Discover your new favorite bottle with Wine Access. I always tell you to rely on the experts, whether it be retailers, psalms, or winemakers. Wine Access has all the knowledge, connections, and stories to point you to the best wines based on your taste. Wine Access also has a great wine club. Let them do all the work so you can discover your new favorite bottles. Go to wineaccess.com slash HRN. That's wineaccess.com slash HRN. Check them out now. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's 2021. Become a member and support us at Heritage Radio Network. 
Org. So we're talking about Finger Lakes, fine cider and regenerative agriculture. Um, so Melissa, Open Spaces Cider. So we're just talking about this special collaboration um, that, that Autumn was talking about. So tell us that, how that project started and uh, more about it. Um, yeah, I think it, it's my tendency to dig like really far back. I think it's worth noting that Autumn, Deva, um, Eric, Ezra, and I have been trying to figure out how to collaborate for years. Um, but this has been something that I think we've all held sort of separately um, as something we've been pursuing. And it's taken a lot of personal education for all of us to kind of be ready for this. I think it was one of the concerns that all of us had was to not be perceived as experts, but, but co-learners. Um, and I think that needs to be acknowledged quite frequently. Um, so we, the three of us came together to support each other in our co-learning at a certain point. And I don't even remember when, because I feel like there's been moments of talking about it over time but you know each of us has our own projects on the other side um and then i i don't even know if i remember how i think we were already having an accountability group between the three of us and i was starting to really want to release my first vintage and not really um not really wanting to do it for for profit it's such a small project and it's got so much generosity from other people built into it that i wanted it to be a um a reparations project or a reparations release and the the commitment that the three of us have made is to try to continu continuously build reparations payments into our business model which is something we've con committed to helping other people work with the resources that we've created um, and then you know we did take advantage of the holiday season and what we found is because of covid and because of the hunger that I think a lot of other people have to be exposed to different ways of doing this, um, the package itself as like a joyful thing, as Autumn said, was really important. So we, you know, cider is a celebratory drink and we are going to use it to celebrate this, this concept. Um, I think one of the things that I've been working on and we've talked about in our group a lot is the idea of normalizing the word reparations. I think we had moments where each of us would talk to people about it and, they would say, well, that's, a, that's too harsh of a word. And I think it's like, you should call it something else. And the reality is that it is the work. So there's nothing to, else to call it. So instead, we were trying to work to put some joyful power behind it for the people that we had access to. And I think um, the logistics of it were deeply complicated. And we are going to run it again. We've committed to running it twice in 2021. There'll be a early summer release and a, um, another holiday release. So, you know, email any of us to get on the list for that. Um, we've worked out some of the logistics. So I want to say, like, thank you to our 60 people who dealt with that. Um, but it was really important to have them make the payment themselves to um, Quarter Acre for the, for the people first to understand that this wasn't just like a like we wanted to get away from the idea of donations. This is a reparations payment. And then we kind of needed to clarify for our customers that like they had to do some work. There are multiple steps. And that's part of the like the personal self-education is like breaking down even your assumption that like you should be able to click a button and have your shopping done. Like that's just one way to challenge the whole situation. Um, but that we were actually the ones making the reparations payment because they they made a payment and got goods and services in return. But they had to go through several steps to start to understand the process. We donated, and this is how I've been framing it. We did donate. See, I did it again. It's not a donation. <laughs> it's so <laughs> to fall into that. We got to watch it. But um, we contributed our cider. I kind of just framed it this way for myself. Um, 
our cider, like the, the actual material part of it, an acknowledgement of the stolen land that we were on and our labor and acknowledgement of stolen lives um, that the wealth of our country is based on. And we did a fair amount of discussion of that in our tasting gathering, but we were also, you know, tasting cider and being joyful. And I think it was really positive. I have to say it was the number one most positive customer service experience that I've had. And I interacted with our customers over the course of like five emails per customer. It was really intense. And um, I'm super grateful to them. It was really positive. We will make it slightly easier, but we are going to keep multiple steps, I think, as part of it because there's an engagement that's required from the beginning, a commitment that's required from the beginning. Um, I don't know if that answered it. I could, I no, could it, go in all It does. Let, let me just, I want to give credit to, to Paige at Boutique Wines because I, I was also, the, the word reparations, it was a little scary to me not, not knowing the nuances. So I asked Paige last night and I just said, is the consumer interested in racial equity or, or land reparations to Native people? And um, she, she, she said that, for her, she she put it in in the context of transparency that that thoughtful people actually really do care about, and especially with everything that happened last year with Black Lives Matters, people really do care that there's black owned businesses and and there's a lot of things like that that I'm not subtle enough to discuss. But um, I'm glad you took us down that road because um, I thought reparations was a scary word to me as well, um, and I like that Autumn said consider it tithing, which is kind of a a core of Western civilization that you would give a percentage of what you took into a church or another type of group. Um, is, is that? And yeah, can I just add something to that, that it's funny that we have a, um, and, and, and Jimmy, I would just relate this actually back to the idea of regenerative agriculture. I think in our, in, in, in America, we kind of have this sort of me, mine mentality um, very individualistic, you know, and um, so reparations can feel like a threatening word in a way, you know, but my experience with this pack and with, you know, the the small amount of reparations experiences that I've had is that it is incredibly joyful um, in the, you know, in the same way that that saying gratitude and being grateful can bring a lot of joy giving is a very joyful act. And, um, people, people are, our, our customers, I think they were actually really grateful for the opportunity to, you know, be part of a giving act. And, and that's, and that's one of the beautiful things about regenerative agriculture. Um, I think as people are really, as you say, maybe rediscovering, you know, in, in their, in their, like uh, the, these, these old ways of doing things, um, they're finding a lot of joy. You know, I'm, I'm going to say something. It, I think it's relevant. I've actually been reading Larry McMurdy Westerns. He wrote Lonesome Dove. And right now the book I'm, I'm reading, he's, it's in the 1850s and the Comanche people of, of the plains um, were at that moment where they realized that more white settlers were coming with 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 soldiers and that their their days, their way of life was really numbered. And they were actually having conversations about, you know, should we go and join the white people and just take up the plow and and plant corn? Um, so this is pretty it goes pretty deep. And this is I, I, I'm glad we had this conversation, because for me also, I think that um, it, it's good to talk 
more nuanced terms about this. Um, I want to bring this back to cider for a minute. So Melissa mentioned her cider. Autumn, can you tell us the story of one? And just so you know, go back to Cider Week 2020. Uh, We have a really great backstory with Autumn and Ezra of Eve Cider. But tell us about a cider that, that somehow captures what we're talking about that you make, or it could be the cider that's part of the, the collaborative package. Well, that cider's all gone. <laughs> well, you can still tell us about it. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, yeah you, if you want to get on, on that, you got to get on, on it quick because that cider goes quick. Um, yeah, tonight I actually, um, I actually wasn't nervous for this podcast because I was drinking cider and I opened a bottle of, um, of Autumn's Gold. Uh, which was not named after me, but that's a whole other long story. We'll have to do a podcast on someday. Um, this cider is for me kind of like our signature blend. Um, it's all, all of the fruit that is in it was grown on our farm. And um, when I think about how both regenerative agriculture and natural cider making techniques uh allow the cider to tell you the story about the place where it is grown. Um, I think about this blend because we're, our, our orchard is located on a very steep um, hillside that's got thin soil over layers and layers of shale. And the, the fruit is, the trees are, um, they're, in a lot of ways, forging their own way. They're not being coddled, you know. Um, it's certainly not like a, 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 a man-made situation. And the fruit that comes off of those trees is not like anything I've tasted really anywhere else, any, any other apples that taste like that. And so to me, those apples and the cider they make always tastes like that sort of hard scrabble, shale-covered hillside, lots of minerality. Um, The honey from the goldenrod and the bees that you always smell in the fall as the apples are getting ripe. Um, The pines that grow all around on the hillside. Um, you You can sort of taste all of those things in the cider. And that's really exciting to me because you know, I drink a lot of cider. Um, and I love the idea that you can really just sort of drink your way through different places and kind of have this like intimate experience. Um, you know, almost like a, like a little journey where you, you can go around and, and see these different places, but the, the, the sense you're using is not your eyes. It's, it's your mouth. It's your taste. And Hey, it's, it's dry cider January. So I'm, I'm going to go to boutique wine and get some of your cider. Um, Deva at Redbird, what's a cider that, that can represent what we're talking about? Well, let's see right now I'm drinking our star blossom, um, which we've made, gosh, I think 10 years in a row. So every year we make it, it's um, a mix of bittersweet apples and heirlooms. Um, it's certified biodynamic, so it's all grown right here. We do a couple other ciders where we um, get apples from trees. We manage other places, but I thought, especially for this podcast, I'd drink something that is fully grown by us. Um, and it's 
bone dry. That's pretty. I think all of our ciders, except one, don't have any residual sugar, so any sweetness added afterwards. Um, it is. Let's see. How can I talk about it? It's unfiltered. So for me, like our cider, you know, we do all of it. We don't have any employees. Um, it's just my husband Eric and myself and our our three boys. So when I taste it. You know, it is, it's not just the apple varieties or even the fermentation uh, style or any of that. It's like, it's, it's everything that goes into it. I mean, it's almost, it's pretty much what Autumn was saying. You know, it's, it's how many days of sunshine it's, um, you know, what animals were in the orchard. It's all of those things. And I think, you know, with that's kind of what we're trying to get at in our in what we're offering out there to the world we're super small and I, I don't know how well it would translate if you're a huge you know acres and acres and thousands and thousands of gallons but for us um, there's a downside to being small but the upside is we can really say and feel all of it in that cider um, that that's beautiful. And, and Melissa, you, you've been, let's talk about it. So you said you've been working uh, or making your product in tandem with Redbird. So tell us about that relationship a little more and how, what, how you, what it feels for you to be in that, that space at Redbird. Well, I didn't mean to imply um, that I was in their space uh, or that, you know, their license covers me or anything, just, you know, to cover the legal boundaries. Um, I press with Eric. Um, and now I think I'm, I'm their unpaid employee, but they might not think that. Um, <laughs> I've convinced <laughs> Eric to finally let me clean the cidery as part of my... Well, you clean up after you press. It's a, that's a yeah. great thing. And for us having Melissa there is, you know, part, it, it actually goes to regenerative ag and this idea of sharing what you have, right? So we have a press, we have time, and we have, you know, a fellow farmer and cider maker who has needs. And it, it only makes us all better, I think, sharing that space um, and knowledge. So it's been, it, it's been an honor to actually get to be a part of somebody else's, you know, journey makes it a beautiful thing and one thing i would say thank you deva um i one thing i always have a little bit of tenderness about it because i am just like straight up asking for help um one of the things i have been trying to balance is that generosity you know with what i can offer which is very different than um than the level of skill that eric and um, autumn have in cider making and the infrastructure but one of the things that's interesting, I think, between the 2019 pressing was, like, we both had a lot more fruit. I never have, I think, if we do an eight-hour pressing, I never have more than two hours of pressing. But um, I've been trying to be on the whole day. But we had, and that was 2019, like, we would have long press days. I don't, I mean, you should speak to a little bit why it changed on your end. I know Eric's work situation changed a lot. But there were fewer press days, and they were all lighter, which I think is, like, one of those interesting vintage notes for year to year. I mean, my, my haul was a lot lighter this year and I always try to write notes. It's like, was it me? Was it the season? Especially with wild foraging, like, you know, especially if you're wild foraging in competition with 
cows, which is what I'm doing right now, like you got to be there or they're gone. Um, and so Eric was actually able to offer that service to more cider makers this year, at least in my presence. And that was kind of an interesting moment. There are other wild trees involved and other, you know, sort of verging on professional hobbyists. And yeah, I think Redbird is, has been really generous in creating a community there. Well, I think for us, you know, Eric was the um, orchard and research farms manager at Cornell for the past 10 years, and he left that position in April. Um, so we are, uh, so he is making cider full time. We're doing Redbird for the first time full time. And I think part of what he realized that he loves so much is, um, getting to be around other folks that are like, like-minded folks and, and seeing what people are doing. And um, especially, you know, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I think right now he's found people that he really uh, enjoys their company. And so it, it's been a fun thing for him to be doing. And it really feels like part of what it is to, farm in community. The, the last thing I want to ask before we go to another conversation, but uh, maybe Deva, is, is there any myth that you like to believe in <laughs> that keeps you going? And I'm not, I'm, I think I read something you said, there's a joke about leaving a cow horn in, out or, or something, but is there a myth that guides you guys that whether it's true or not, you'd, you'd like to share with us? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I guess I don't know if this would be a myth, but like what is kind of our guiding principle here? Um, and mate, this isn't really a myth, but like conceptually what keeps us going. So I'm Jewish. Um, I grew up in a reform synagogue. And to me, like this concept of tikkun olam, which is like healing the world, and this idea that it's kind of in shattered pieces and we're putting it back together and there's like these, these tears, right, that you're repairing. And it's like your kind of your duty, your duty to God and what God will also like allow you to do. And I don't even necessarily believe in, in God in that sense, but in, in this myth, let's say, um, it's what is guiding. And so like, especially this year, we've really, that's, been what we've been thinking about is is this idea of repairing these tears and the way that they get repaired is through you know weaving these threads and those threads are through collaborations right of people like you people totally different from you but like wherever there are collaborations um like that's where fabric gets rewoven and so that's kind of been our 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 myth that this that we really keeps us fully going I would say that and this idea also within Judaism of tzedakah which is um you know you can call it charity or donations but kind of like that um sharing money and resources to those in need or to whatever is an act of justice like and that comes in play with this repairing these tears so if anything um that's kind of where we focus and then you know with biodynamics there's this like this also bringing in of 
the spirit and the cosmos, which feels like that also kind of brings this more whole earth. Yeah, just like this vision of making things whole again. And I think that's another part of like, you know, you said the word reparations is scary. And I know for a lot of people it is. And it's like also this like, it makes some people's blood boil in this funny way. Um, to think of it as, you know, there's repar reparations, but reparative, like it is a reparative act that has to happen, right? Like if we're going to get to anywhere of a beautiful future, reparative acts need to happen. Um, and when you were talking about the Larry McMurray, the, the Western, it was beautiful. Like we just watched the movie um, Gather, which was gorgeous, which is kind of looking at indigenous agriculture right now in the United States. And it ended, there was a young man um, from, I think, Oregon, uh, the coast. And he said, you know, that there are already like a lot of indigenous communities are already on the other side of a, the apocalypse. You know, we're thinking of it as it hasn't happened yet. And they're like, we're already there. We're on the other side. And what we're looking at right now with agriculture, with politics, with climate justice is like, we're at the point for a restorative revolution. And he kind of puts this call out of like, this is where if you if you want to be there, this is where you need to be and get your hours in. And I think that's kind of all woven in together. So that's that's what keeps us going right now and really um, motivates us to do what we're doing. Well, Dave, I, I think you, you have to uh, we're gonna write down what you just said, and that's going to be the the model for your for your movement because now i get it and, and ju just say it in hebrew because it sounds yeah. nice <laughs> um so and then last autumn since you brought us together is there one last thing you want to ask of uh, either of your colleagues oh that's that's a that's a curveball i hadn't thought about that um okay well let's see melissa and deva um, we're just getting into the cellar. Um, we're just starting to wrap up fermentations and kind of get a, a sense of what the 2020 growing season means and how it expressed in the cider this year. And I'm really curious what you're seeing in your ciders. Great question. Oh, I've got Eric here right next to me. So, Eric, what are you? Autumn has a question. Let's. That's a great way to end it. Let's get Eric on with that question. <laughs> what are you seeing in the ciders for 2020? Oh, um, a density of fruit and um, thickness of texture, very rich, um, concentrated, super elevated fruit aroma. Uh, high bricks, obviously, because of the drought and the small crop. Um, yeah, I guess actually, um, in a way, the most explosive ciders I think I've ever worked with. So um, the potential is exciting. Good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Can't wait. Did you, Can't wait for the release. And what about Autumn? Did you get everything you wanted from this show, or do you do you want to go to one more place? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess. <laughs> do we have time? Yeah, we have time. Um. Yeah, I think that um, you know, listening to Deva talk really kind of brought it all home for me, which is that 
um, just sort of saying again that uh, these these problems that like we're all facing in the world that I think a lot of us maybe got brought home in a bigger way this year because of COVID, um, they're super interconnected. And that's why reparations and regenerative agriculture and natural winemaking or cider making, excuse me, are connected as well, you know? Um, and, and it's, it, it's, it's something that I've been really sort of moved by, I think in the past, um, in the past months that, there really does feel like this movement of people just feeling like the, the, the interest and the, and the participation level that we had in our reparations package. Um, we just advertised in, for an internship for our cidery. We, we, we have an intern with us every year. And um, for me, this is really amazing. We, we had 21 applicants um, and I have 21 essays on my computer of the, of like amazing people who are feeling called to like reconnect with the earth, reconnect with this age old relationship that we have with the earth of agriculture and reconnect with communities in a way that, you know, maybe really they haven't seen before. And um, so, you know, when, when Deva said that, um, that beautiful piece that she said, I feel that, you know, she's really, she's really right on. I think that's happening now. Well, Autumn, you know what, I, well, you know what I'm doing to reconnect? I actually enjoy doing the dishes by hand every day. It's, <laughs> nice. it's been my COVID project and it, it works, you know? So maybe you find someone that likes to do dishes on your farm too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and let's get Melissa because Melissa, you're the first person that ever talked to me about regenerative agriculture on air a year and a half ago. What, what What's your final point you'd like to, to, to say? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I think that Deva and Autumn said it really well. And I feel like I'm just in a constant conversation with them about this. And it's it's a true blessing. It's one of the highlights for me of this year. Um, and I think that that was part of what we were trying to offer in the package is like a sense of community because um, sort of the emotional labor of figuring out how to do this is huge and being able to do it in community is really beautiful. So I want to thank both of them for that. Well, thank you. And I want you guys to know that I was a little afraid of the show uh, just because I think I realized that I didn't quite understand the concepts. And I really appreciate you taking the time with me. Um, I, I've learned a lot more about you and I, I definitely respect and I and I crave uh, both Eve cider and Redbird, uh, Redbird Orchard cider, um, two of my favorites. So hopefully our listeners will uh, also check you guys out more. So I'm going to say goodbye now. I'm going to say thanks to our uh, intern, Caroline Fox, and to our engineer, Armin. And I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. Thank you to Melissa, Autumn, Deva, and Eric for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Woo! Okay. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, 
heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.